This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Let's play a game. Let's play a game. Okay, 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 okay. Let's play a game. Let's play a game. Okay, okay, We're taking our microphone to different locations, to different places. Your job is to close your eyes and listen and decide where we are and what is happening. Okay? This time, I'm going to ask you to do something besides just listening. I would like for you and your friends to pretend you're actually in the places you hear. Make believe. And while you're pretending and having fun, please ask yourself this question. And what will become of me? And what will become of me? Please ask yourself this question. What will become of me? And what will become of me? There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind in living color on WTDR. Wow. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy.
Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Tonio, and good morning all you folks out there who are listening to this. Yes, indeed. So today, we're going to be talking about good old King Alfred. That's right. And he was king of England back in the 8th or was it the 9th century? Does it make a difference to you which of the two centuries it was? Um, maybe for, the, for accuracy or what? relative accuracy. What is accuracy and what is relative accuracy? And what, <laughs> and what the Snopes say about all of this? I don't know. I try to avoid Snopes because people throw Snopes at me sometimes. And I, I find it a bit offensive. I've already uh, <laughs> expressed my opinions about Snopes when we talked to some time ago. Yes. But let's get back to the question of the 8th versus the 9th century. Yes. Suppose one said he was king of England back in the olden days. That would be fine. Would it make any difference to you? No. No. Because it's all way back there. Way back. And the difference between the 8th and the 9th century is not of much importance. Now, if I said, however, America, was it in the 17th or the 18th century? I think one might say, well, yes, there was a difference. Or the 18th and the 19th century. I think, you know, for more recent history, we do like to know. Why, why do you think that's the case? Well, we know so much. We grow up knowing so much about, you know, the history of the United States. And we so it's know, more personal in a way. I don't know about personal. In a political way. I don't know about personal. I would have said more, uh, almost the opposite, more civic and public and social, uh, you know I mean? Well, I, I meant personal in that way, that it's uh -huh. part of our, our we take our, our national history and heritage and culture personally. Some of us do, but some of us don't. Right. But, uh, but, but in general, this nation, people in this country... I, I don't, don't even know if it's true that. in general. I mean, I know from reading Facebook that there's a lot of people who say we, where they mean we, United States citizens. But I don't think anyone could construct a poll that would find out how many human beings on this, in the, within the borders of the United States take it personally. And I'll give you an example of people who I know don't. Uh... My beloved wife, Bridget, and I, for three years, ran a rinky-dink little GED program for what's called at-risk youth. Now, this was in the middle of nowhere. It was in a little town in Arizona, about half an hour north of the Mexican border. It used to be a mining town, and then the mine closed down. To get to the point, we had up to 10 students who had to pass the GED, and they were TO, which is Tohono Odom, who have the reservation right there, and the reservation is on both sides of the border. That's to say the tribe is on both sides of the border, the nation, really. Um, so these were the TO students, and they were Mexican students, some of whom, you know, were born on this side of the border and perhaps some not. Uh, they were teenagers and up to 20 years old. And the reason I'm telling you the story is, nowadays, in order to pass the GED, and Bridget and me are both very good at helping people to do this, you have to answer a question on something called enduring issues or something like that. I know the types of people who create these things because I spent time at Harvard Graduate School of Education. They are top-notch educators, you know? Okay, so no bad-mouthing them. <laughs> it's not their fault that this question became a touchstone of whether you are fit to get a, the equivalent of a high school diploma and thus get a job, which is baloney anyway, because some of them had jobs, they didn't have the diploma. But anyway... And who wants a job anyway? Oh, that's a different story. They certainly needed a job. So, um, Yeah, people <laughs> tend to need jobs, not necessarily want jobs. 
Well, let's not get into that right now. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll never get to the point, point of my story, which I want to get to rapidly so we can get back to Alfred. And that is this. The enduring issue is a very important issue in American culture. It is something like freedom of speech or something of that sort. There is usually a quote. The quote was once from Milton. It could be from Thomas Jefferson. The sort of quote that I, and maybe you, would take in without much trouble. And then there would be some passage that you had to comment on. Once it was a newspaper opinion piece in 1917 about a case whether during war one can or cannot criticize the government. And to pass this little part of the test, big part of the test, you had to write a little essay defending or the opposite, the position taken in the thing. Now I can see why, you know, that's a good criterion for citizenship. But for these folks to be reading what Thomas Jefferson wrote, they may as well have been reading Don Quixote in Spanish. I mean, it, made, it meant nothing to them. And this had to do with what you said about the assumption I think this is worth spending a little time on, that the citizens of a nation, the members of a nation, take personally the national myth, to put it at its most extreme. That assumption certainly needs to be scrutinized. And in fact, one can trace when that began. There was a time when people didn't do that. But it was in the Romantic era when people started saying, oh, my nation, my nation. And then it was especially in the late 19th century with imperialism and nationalistic fervor that you could not, as I read, Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism says, to be a good Pole, oh, I wish I could remember it, meant that you believed everything that you'd been told about Poland <laughs> and that it mattered to you. Now, there's a difference between that and a religion. If you call yourself a Muslim or a Christian or whichever religion you care to name that's institutionalized, the assumption is that you take it personally. So I made the distinction between a religious myth, belief, creed, and on the other hand, the question we began with, whether it makes a difference when someone says which century something happened in. And I suggested that for the case of American history, it does perhaps make a difference and suggested that because so many people do know when the revolution was and that there was a man called Abraham Lincoln, not my students in the southern part of Arizona, and they are not the only people who don't know this. Some would say the president doesn't know this. So it is possible to be a citizen or non-citizen of the United States and not know the story or not care, right? Now, with all of that in mind, let's get back to the question of King Alfred was a, a king of England in the olden days, right? Mm -hmm. So are you sort of suggesting that, that people generally don't give a fig whether King Alfred reigned in the 8th or ninth century because it was so far back and it's not even relevant personally, nationalistically to people here in this country? Well, that's a very good question. Um, since this is a subject on which I can write a three-volume book <laughs> about any topic you care to bring up, <laughs> I propose the following strategy for containing what I really am desiring to say. I'm going to name label three strands that I see could come up in our conversation. One is, who is King Alfred, quite apart from me sitting here, and why have people, you know, talked about him? What have people said about him? Well, the short answer to that is, people have talked about King Alfred for over a thousand years, and that's already interesting right there. Now, I'll compare that for my purposes with an interesting question, who is Jesus? 
Well, people have talked about Jesus for 2,000 years. That's an interesting question. Then, in the 19th century, the question really came up, but just, but did he exist? Was he real, or is he a myth? Like Arthur, or like Hercules? Important question, and it distinguishes between history and something which isn't history, right? The second strand has to do with what I want to say, what I am going to say, what I'm saying about all of this in the book that I'm writing, because I'm saying something different. And the third strand, knowing you, I think I want to label this third strand, is why am I, Tomasito de Callepo, who was born in Callepo <laughs> in Mexico, why am I interested in this guy, so interested that for 50 years I've been wanting to tell the world what I discovered about him? That's an interesting topic to you, and I do love to talk about that at length, but the most important one, I think, is the first and the second one, because I do know now, which I didn't know six months ago, that my book may be of interest to people who don't know the 8th century from the 9th century England, and who don't know everything that academia knows about the real King Alfred, right? With that in mind, uh, and I see you're nodding, so you're okay with my three labels. Yep. Yes, yes. With that in mind, I will get back to the very first one. Oh, really? Because I was going to ask you if you thought it might be prudent to dispense with the third one. Oh, yes. <laughs> Fat chance, but let's try. <laughs> <laughs> since since you, be you prefer the first two. Well, it would be a relief to me, because what's most... What I'm going to get out of this conversation, I'm already getting out of this conversation, is it improves the book that I'm writing. I'm pretty isolated up there in Hardwick, which, as uh, you know, and some listeners And now that you have a new puppy, you're going to even be more isolated. Yes, it's true, (laughs) folks. Uh, We have a new puppy. We've had him for three days. We love him. But I had to get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to let him pee. You didn't name him Alfred by any chance, There's no chance. But I got on (laughs) Facebook, if I may mention Facebook. (laughs) This is topic number three. Next door to topic number three. I got on Facebook and posted a photo of the darling little kid. I saw that. You saw that, and I got 120 hits. I think that's the second most. And I know you care about that. (laughs) You see, this is what Facebook is really all about. It's about pet photos and and No, it's not. We talked about that last time, and it's about many, many things, but I'm going to get back to the point, (laughs) which is my book does not have to be addressed to people who already have strong opinions about the difference between the 8th and the 9th century. On the other hand... Any reader who knows very well what the difference was between the 8th and the 9th century must not say, this guy, you know, is writing historical fiction. So this is the question I want to put to you, my dear friend, Tonio. Because when we signed off last time, you mentioned that you actually enjoy reading historical fiction. I love historical fiction. May I, you know, interview you a little bit on that topic? Certainly. I would really be curious to know the answer to these three questions. Hopefully we'll, we'll get to Alfred Oh, yes, someday. this is all about Alfred. No, this is about Alfred. <laughs> okay, good. This is about the difference between writing historical fiction about Alfred, mm-hmm. which, for example, Bernard Cornwell has done in a book that was a blockbuster. He's a blockbuster historical fiction writer and then became a video, or a movie, I mean, or some, some, whatever that media is that you now call <laughs> films, uh, about the lost... The Last Kingdom. So right now, there are you know people who are into Vikings and so on, and they think they know Alfred because they've seen this this movie, right? Now that is not necessarily the historical Alfred, nor does it really matter because it's something else. And this is what I want to ask you, because if I ask myself how much historical fiction do I enjoy reading, I think the answer is surprisingly little. I read more historical fiction than science fiction. 
Now, I don't know what the terms are nowadays, but I want to ask you, dear Tonio, do you also enjoy reading science fiction? I've read very, very little science fiction in my life. And why is that? What's the difference for you between historical fiction and science fiction? I like history. Say more, please. Uh, I just... Well, and maybe... I'm not sure if this is it. It might be that better writers get into historical fiction than, than science fiction. Although I've read some books by, by people that, that are characterized as masters of the craft, but I just have found that most science fiction lacks a lot of the dimension that really good historical fiction. Plus, I am a person who likes to connect the dots of, of, of things that I've learned and put things together so I can relate to historical fiction much more than I can relate to science fiction, which is usually way out there and completely untethered to reality. Not that I'm obsessed with reality. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you ever feel... <laughs> but but if I'm going to become untethered, I'd rather do that on my own terms rather than somebody else's. Well, yes. Right. So I think that's that's the distinction. I feel, Tonya, that uh, this actually is a, turns out to be a very interesting question, one we might like to explore at length some other time. Uh-huh. I don't know how many people have po- probed it. I haven't read anything about it, but I feel a bit like you about science fiction. But I think it's because of... Um, now, let's bracket that off, because I do want to steer this little craft oh, I was, to Alfred, you know? You, you just piqued my interest, but... No, 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 I, I, you, you, can, you can trust me on this. I'm a pro. Oh. I, I, advised, <laughs> I advised hundreds of, of advisees at Goddard, which means we engaged in dialogues on many subjects. I'll guide us to, before the break at 10 o'clock, I'll guide us to a nice port. Uh, <laughs> an advisor with an agenda. Let's not go there. Let me be that advisor right now. Yes. And it's not even an advisor. Here I go. You're my guest. You're, yes, yes, but I also want You have to, carte blanche. I, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, and we doodle together. We, we make beautiful, beautiful music together. And here we go. Back. That was the exposition for Sonata. <laughs> we had the themes. Now we're going to do the development. Uh, science and then fic- the variations. No. no. <laughs> science fiction versus... No, then the recapitulation with a new twist. See, that's what historical fiction is, are the variations. Okay, let me, let me have a turn. Um, <laughs> uh, of all the different things you already said about why you personally prefer one to the other, my intellectual quest right now is what they have in common, and certain other distinctions I want to make. Now, I think that nowadays what I used to call science fiction, and I'm old, and it was, you know, but anyway, the, 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 the thing about science fiction now is it shades over into what I believe is now called fantasy. Ursula Le Guin, for example, that's not science fiction. No. It's not historical fiction. Well, and it, it, you're right, but it, it's almost almost a bridge between the two. Yes, but let's not get... Because it brings in the... Mythology and yes. and things like that. Yes, which I would say science fiction usually makes very little attempt to connect. And I'm not sure whether it's because the authors 
lack imagination or or maybe they have too much imagination for my taste i don't know okay allow me to paint this in in broad strokes everything you're saying about science fiction fascinates me but i'm going to bracket that off yes uh i brought in Thank fantasy you. yes and i brought in ursula Le Guin because nobody can deny she's a fantastic I love writer. she's a fantastic writer yes. so let's just assume from now on that and storyteller yes right storyteller that's the main point isn't it yeah uh and let's assume that from now on we're talking about excellent writers so that that very interesting question of whether it was well written can be bracketed off not that it's unimportant but the issue i want to put before us right now certainly before me hopefully before you and anyone who cares about this conversation is the contrast between history and something that is not history i'm going to call it three or four things fantasy fiction legend myth and as people who are interested in which is now a big area in in academia in the construction of historical narratives how you tell the history you can't tell the history of something if you're not going to tell a story. Of course, there are historians who are good historians and they don't tell stories because they don't want to tell a fiction. So, we've got on the one hand, historical fiction is one of a satellite around some sun. The other planets in, in the system are science fiction, fantasy, and then there's just novels, you know, and, and all sorts of fiction, literature, fiction. And on the other hand, we have history. How does one draw the line between them? And what pleasure does it give you to read historical fiction? I want to probe a little on this because I could see your whole body language, your face lit up, and you sighed. You said, ah, as if as if there's something in reading historical fiction that satisfies a desire that you have. Am I on the right track? Um, I think you misread my sigh oh, of satisfaction. Good. Oh, good. Go <laughs> my for sigh it. of satisfaction was when you said, where's the distinction between historical fiction and history? And how, how does one neatly divide the two? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, that's very important. That's, that, in a nutshell, is what my book is all about. Who gets to draw the line between history and what in my book I have to call, and I'm glad to call, hagiography. Hagiography is a certain subset of historical fiction. It means saints' lives. It means uh, lives of people who are so heroic that you want to be like them. <laughs> it's like romantic fiction. <laughs> yes. Romanticism. Yes. Historical romanticism. Yes. A new genre. No, it's a very old genre. And it's a, but it's called hagiography as opposed to romantic historical oh, I think, fiction. Oh, no, I don't think that's a distinction they would have made back then. I think they would have been perfectly happy if they any reason. I'm talking about people who wrote these, these Latin lives, and then in every other language, all through the Middle Ages, it was the most popular form of literature there mm. was. But we're talking about a wide variety of things. There were saints who flew through the sky and, and saved damsels in distress and destroyed, you know, Voldemort. And, uh, <laughs> and, and there were saints who, you know, were historical people and actually existed. Right. And then came the Grimm's brothers. <laughs> when? Whenever. I don't know. Well, before or after? Oh, at, long after. No, long before. The Grimm's brothers, I mean, if we're talking about the same thing, when you say the Grimm's brothers, you mean the folktales. Actually, I mean the, the actual Grimm's brothers who collected the folktales. Yes, I know. Because the folktales, obviously, as you say, exactly. came before. Exactly. 
The folktales are the oldest form. And the folktales do begin. Once upon a time, in the olden days, there was a king of England or, you know, or king of Poland or, you know, a chief of our Ugugubu tribe. Who had the most beautiful daughter in the, in the country and he was trying to marry her off. Go on. And so what does he do? Um, he, he puts out a proclamation that, that the first handsome young lad who can solve the great royal riddle will win his daughter's hand and and inherit the kingdom. Oh, God bless you. <laughs> that is exactly how my chapter four begins. <laughs> my chapter four begins, once upon a time there was a king who had three sons. Uh-huh. Now, your version is just as suitable as mine. And this is what I want my book to be about. When you hear once upon a time, you know where you are. It's the frame that tells you that. It moves rapidly in my chapter to once upon a time there was a queen who had three sons, a queen who had seven sons. And then it tells a story where the queen says, she says, I say, there's a quest, there's a contest, the first son fails, the second son fails, the third son succeeds and wins the prize and uh, marries, you know, right, right? And so this mother of this prince, this queen who had these seven sons, showed her sons a beautiful book of poetry, of songs, with a golden cover and jewels in the gold, and opened it up and said to her sons, the first of you who can sing these songs gets to keep the book. And the youngest son says, really? She says, yeah. And he takes the book from her hand and runs off with it to his teacher and learns the songs. Then he comes back and sings the the songs to the family and gets to keep the book. Now, so far, Alfred hasn't even been mentioned, although this is in a book about Alfred. But my hunch is, my hope is, my faith is that any reader would already see that without knowing anything more about this queen and her sons, you already have a response to this story. You don't need to know the names. You don't need to know anything more than is already in the story. Right? Would you agree so far? That we're affected, yes. yes. But I think we are very curious to know more. Sometimes yes and because sometimes Because you mentioned no. that there were three sons. and I know. Sometimes yes and sometimes no. And I think when people talk about the... And, folk- how, and what's, his relation, what's, his, yeah, what's his relationship with the other two sons? And do they turn into jealous monsters or <laughs> you got it you got it and you're validating these are the things i start to say in my chapter this is so heartwarming to hear you say all of this uh, it validates my faith that people who are interested in stories will get the point i'm making now um let's go back track because i'd like this musical thing i'm now named musical we pick up a motif that we're already in and we develop it a little the motif is this once uh, we moved from King Alfred was the king of England in the 8th or was it the 9th century? We moved away from that to once upon a time in the olden days there was a king of England. We moved from that to an actual story which we 
I, I cut myself short before I show that this is one of the most famous stories about Alfred the Great. But it has been accused of being a mere folktale and therefore not true. Which we will get back to before we finish today. That's the port that I want to get to. So I will now do a prefiguration. My final chapter will be give a very surprising argument in a case that it was Alfred himself who told this story about himself. And that that's why it's so charming. We don't have time to get into all the charm of the story. But let's go back to this moment where you said, once upon a time, there was a king who had a beautiful daughter. Now, what we managed to do is to bring into our conversation everything really about folktales. And I think when it comes to folktales, there are some of us who heard them and told them without thinking, oh, we're telling a folktale. They didn't come labeled with grim, you know, but they go, yeah, you, after all, you read to your kids. I mean, you we really are talking about, as is now well known, that there are only about six different ways of telling a story, and the folktales try each one of them. You know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl, and so on. Variations on these plots, right? And so as soon as you have a parent and siblings, you've got the very interesting question you raised. What do the oldest parents, what do the oldest kids feel about the youngest? And how did they feel about him? Did they get pissed off? Or did they get you know mad at him because he, because he grabbed the book before they even had a chance? Or did they not even care? Maybe they, you know they had no they had no interest in learning these stupid songs, right? And that brings you know, the most famous case is Joseph, who dreams. I dreamt that you were all sheaves of wheat and you all bowed down to me. And he wakes up in the morning and he tells the family his dream. And his brother says, well, like, oh, we're not going to bow down to you. And then he says, I had a dream. I dreamt that the planets and the moon and the stars all bowed down to me. And his whole family said, we're not going to bow down to you, right? And that's in the Old Testament. It's a great story. And if you'd like folktales, you could build on it. And Thomas Mann, who I've read, I think, two books all the way through, wrote a big four-volume historical fiction about Joseph and his brothers that apparently is a splendid piece of literature. My attention span doesn't go that far anymore, but I still think I might try and put on the list of things that I might read before I die, but I wonder. Anyway, my point is that once you have a story, yes, people may want to know more than the story I already told you, but I will retell the story in its briefest version so that I can hammer home the point that there are some stories that, without any further context, already intrigue you so much that they enter into your self-understanding and so on. They tend to be called things like parables. Once upon a time, there was a mother. Forget king and queen. Forget their once upon a time. Let's pretend it's a parable from the New Testament. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a mother... Or if you prefer, you know, from the, from the book of Tao or some, some holy scriptures. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a mother who shows her children a beautiful book of songs and says the first one to read this gets to keep the book. And one of them takes the book and learns the songs and sings them to his mother. Now, at that point, I think interpretation forks because some people might want to say, what was in the book? What was the kid's name? Was he the oldest? Was he the youngest? Other people might feel that's not relevant. What's relevant is 
that in life sometimes there is a task and there is a prize. And when you do the task, you discover that the prize is having done the task. So there's a spiritual value to this parable. If I do the task and I can sing the songs off by heart, do I still need the book? On the other hand, if I have the book and own it, but can't sing the songs, what good is it? So I squeeze a lot of juice out of the story before I reveal who told it. And in the context of this being a book about Alfred, it's already understood, but in the context of our conversation today, reveal that the youngest son was called Alfred. And then I ask, now what can this story about a youngest child who beats his older brothers in a contest for a royal you know, prize, what can this story possibly tell us about the real King Alfred when he was alive, before he got to be king, and long before he became the hero of many a romance and uh, history book, and long before he was called the father of the British Empire. What can a story like this possibly tell us about a real person? Isn't that an interesting question? Mm -hmm. Isn't it? it? Sounds like a very unusual beginning for a It is a a very unusual thing, and I always knew it was, but now that I've come out of the closet, as it were, and I'm going to publish it, and I'm getting feedback of a sort, you know, from the, as I sum up what the book's about, I'm starting to get feedback from people whom I respect, people who I know a little bit of, all sorts of people, thanks to a network that I've learned to develop through the internet. In the academic world? Oh, very much. Yes. And, and we can talk about that strand number three, which I will call, what legitimacy do I have to say these things? Who has the right to speak about these subjects? Where on earth did a Mexican Jew get the chutzpah to think that he could say anything at all, let alone critical things, about the father of the British Empire, I say. (laughs) (laughs) And as one of the rejections, Slip said, from Peter Hunter Blair, no less, I would have thought the question was whether a mere ninth-century scholar could know quite as much about parataxis and ellipsis as Kalmar obviously does. I would rather be wrong with everyone else then write with him. (laughs) (laughs) So my friend Philip Bowsman, who's the world's best calligrapher, did this large, on butcher paper, did this large transcription of that in this exact script that a ninth-century scribe at that time in England would have used. And I framed it and put it on my wall so that it teaches me humility. But this is getting to that third subject, my story. So it is a very unusual approach. And let me recap, for my own sake. It is saying that here is a story. What can it possibly tell us about a king? Right? Now, shall I go on from there, or did you want to ask me some questions? I've got some good things to follow up on that. Continue. Okay. On the one hand, then, we have a story. On the other hand, we have an enormous body of stuff about this king. For a thousand years... There's never been a time in the history of England when he was forgotten. There have been times when he was very highly regarded. There were times when he was not as popular as King Arthur. Well, King Arthur, you see, was Celtic, Welsh, Irish, them. With King Alfred, was Mm Anglo-Saxon. 
And so you can tell the history of England and its idea of English identity by how Arthur was doing compared to Alfred. All the way up to the 19th century, where you get nationalism, and then as we get to 1900, Alfred was regarded as the father of the British Empire, and people were taught to adore him. Now, in the 20th century, a lot of work has been done, and so there is now no question, did Alfred exist? It is hard for scholars to believe, but I find, and anybody who looks into the, what happened in the 19th century will discover, that if you read what people were saying about Alfred in the 1870s, and here we get to the difference between one decade and another. The 1870s means, yes, Queen Victoria, but the 1870s was a bad decade for royalty. 1870s, people called Queen Victoria Mrs. Brown because uh, she was hanging out with her stable guy. The lady chattered his lover, you know. And so, you know, Alfred was becoming... You could poke fun at him in the 1870s. And so it was this guy who was an antiquary. I don't know if we'll get into this, but he lived in Manchester and he wrote in what in those days would have been Facebook. Uh, no, maybe not. Academia. Uh, today it would be a, a social media. He wrote in the thing that came out every week, a little thing. Basically, he claimed... There was this big argument went on. He claimed that Alfred never existed. And there's no way you can know his birthday. You, know, you can't know anything about him. He never existed. He's like Arthur. And it wasn't all that easy to prove that he was wrong. So, we now get, I think, to what many, what anyone who thinks seriously about the difference between history and fiction, between history and mere story, has to deal with at some level, and sometimes at a very deep level, and that is how can you prove that something existed or happened? How can you tell the difference between what people say happened and what actually happened? And so there's a very popular metaphor in this kind of thinking, which is the law courts. Are we even going to listen to this witness? You can't believe a word he says. He lies the whole time. And so if you come across some text which is full of lies, that's to say fiction, of things that didn't happen, there never was no such queen, and there never was no such king, and this thing never did happen. Now, we aren't going to pay attention to that. And so you find yourself looking instead at uh, deeds where property changes hands. That happened. <laughs> and so we get an attitude to history, which we may as well nickname the professionalization of history, which happened in the 19th century. And the line is drawn between this, I'm going to say again, vast body of stuff that is known about Alfred and is seriously grounded in academic discipline and these stories. So what my book is about is three stories. I've told you one. And I treat them as stories. I don't ask, did they really happen? I ask, what do they say to you today, to anyone? Who first told them? Who first wrote them down? And in what context and why? Now, this took a bit of nerve, but I've got positive feedback from people who are really good at this way of thinking to anchor this question down. I compare the whole thing to the quest for the historical Jesus. Now, can I say a bit about the quest for the historical Jesus? Absolutely. That quest has a voluminous body of literature, practically all of which I find utterly fascinating. <laughs> not everybody would. Uh, not everybody has my particular locura, my twisted little... <laughs> 
kink in my brain there. Maybe rabbis do, I don't know. Um, but every nuance of the way people interpret the quest for the historical Jesus fascinates me. Because you have two Jesuses. You have the second person of the Trinity... And you have this carpenter, this Jewish carpenter who wandered around Palestine saying and things and doing things. And the question becomes, once one reaches a certain, I won't say level, let's say phase or a, a certain kind of attitude to civilization, once you reach a certain level of something, culture, you say, well, what's the relationship between the man who actually walked the earth and the second person of the Trinity and all of the things you know about, he sits on the right hand, blah, 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 blah. What is that relationship? In which Jesus do I believe if I call myself a Christian? Well, there have been so many people who call themselves Christians that it becomes a very interesting question. And, uh, and do, does a person who goes to church and pray, do they really need to know what biblical scholars have found out about the four Gospels? On the other hand, without the four Gospels, we wouldn't know a thing. And so... Well, we'd have Paul, but, you know, the stories we wouldn't have. And, of course, it's always, one way or another, you come up to the fact that it's the stories that people believe. <laughs> and, and, and it does make a difference whether they happened or not, because the most important story is that he died and rose from the dead. Well, I'm, you know, many people will say, well, yes, I can believe this story, but I can't believe that one. So, in, in the cult, well, let me introduce the term cult. I have a very good friend who's a professor of religious studies at BU. He knows this stuff inside out. And I was talking about cults. He said, we're not allowed to, in religious studies, we're not allowed to talk about cults. That seems like a pejorative term. But I can use the word cult for the following reason. Saints cults, everybody calls them cults, and they were cults. And there was a cult of King Alfred the Great, even though he wasn't a saint. And it's sort of been acknowledged, but no one has taken it seriously. In my book, I say, this is a contribution to the cult of King Alfred the Great. I've been a lifelong devotee, and I'm, you know, this is my contribution to his cult. <laughs> and then I show, he started his own cult. Now, all of this has to do with the point we reached where, what can this story possibly tell us about the historical Alfred? So, a sower goes out to sow seed, and he casts his seed broadcast. That's the original meaning of broadcast. Broad, he just throws the seed to the left and throws it to the right. And some of the seed falls on stony ground and doesn't bear any fruit. Some falls on middling ground and then troubles come and the wind comes and the storms come and it withers away and some falls on fertile soil and yields a hundredfold <laughs> it's a beautiful parable and one which what people find in it tells you who they are because if some people say it means this that you know more about them if someone says no it means that you know more about them for example if some people say oh am i the stony ground or am I the fertile soil? Getting back to what you said about taking this personally. And a person could get into deep Puritan, Puritan neurosis over that. Am I doomed or am I saved? Somebody else might say, Oh, I'm just a seed cast forth into the world. It's not up to me whether I land on stony ground or fertile soil. My destiny in life is to go forth into the world and land wherever I land. 
And a third person might say, oh, I don't have to be so picky about where my seeds fall. All I need to do is just broadcast it because some will fall on this and some will fall on that and some will yield 60-fold. <laughs> Does that tell you anything about the historical Jesus? And so there is now... I think I need to wrap that question up and say the following. So so the, the fertile ground that you're alluding to is people's minds, is the fertile ground of people's beliefs and the birthplace of mythologies or stories or go on yeah or history go if on. if it was if the seeds were cast out of people's direct experience or whether they were cast out of somebody's stories right now i think of utonio as someone who's long been familiar with the many comparable stories in many spiritual traditions, as people say. Uh, people, traditions, I don't know even though if the word spiritual and tradition is necessary, but anyway, the kinds of stories that I think of as, a, that I associate with Idris Shah and when his book started coming out, these stories, Sufi stories. Sheikh Nasruddin? What, or what? Sheikh Nasruddin? Tell me. Do you know who I'm... Yes, oh yes, yes, tell me one. Well, he's... he's so tell me, tell he, me your favorite one, or the one that first pops to your mind. Well, the the one that that usually pops into my mind first is the one where he's in a boat crossing a huge river with a scholar, and the scholar turns to Sheikh Nasruddin and says, "Have you studied the classics?" And Sheikh Nasruddin says, "No." And the scholar says, "Well, then you've wasted half your life." And a few minutes later, Sheikh Nasruddin turns to the scholar and says, "Have you ever learned to swim?" And the scholar says. Why, no. Well, in that case, said Sheikh Nasruddin, you've wasted your entire life because we're sinking. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that a good one? I'll tell you my favorite one. I always pronounce him Nasruddin, but that nobody cares because he's pronounced in so many different ways. This is one of my favorites. He's walking down the street, and this guy comes up and slaps him on the face. So Nasruddin takes the guy to the judge and demands you know, a judgment and damages. But unfortunately, the judge is an uncle of the guy. So the judge listens to the whole story and says, I have no alternative but to find you guilty. Nasruddin says, well, what about my damages? The judge says, you have to pay Nasruddin a penny. The guy searches in his pockets and says, I don't seem to have any change on me. I'll go home. I'll come right back with the penny. The guy goes. After a while, Nasruddin gets a bit impatient. He goes up to the judge and slaps him on the face and says, when he comes back, the penny is yours. (laughs) Now, I know in my heart that there are and have long been places where people gather around the campfire, around the drink or around whatever they gather and swap stories. And when one tells one story, someone tells, oh, I got another one, and laugh. And as they share these stories, if there are these, I'm going to nickname Sufi stories as a, as a general nickname without being picky about what I mean by that. These kinds of stories can be told to give someone a chuckle, but they can also, as, as people know, be taken one at a time and read and understood at a different level. Well, there are also parables. Yes, and the thing about a parable is that there are levels of understanding and levels of interpretation. 
And that's an important aspect of them, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I think I've come to the end of a movement. <laughs> of the first movement? Yes. Well, what's the second movement? Thank you. That's, that's all I needed. You are my native informant right now because you're a person who said you enjoy reading historical fiction. The sigh that I referred to came when I said to you, why do you enjoy reading historical fiction? And you said, ah, that's the one I was referring to. There are people who enjoy reading historical fiction. And we're not talking about that very interesting subject, me. We're talking about that <laughs> other interesting subject, you. And I'm putting you in the role of a native informant. I want you to tell me what people who enjoy reading historical fiction, what it's like for them. And here's the question I would like to put to you and them. What is the difference for you between reading historical fiction and reading history, a history book? And alternatively, what's the difference for you between reading historical fiction and reading just fiction, a novel? Pick either of those two if they interest you. Okay. Um, well, historical fiction takes history and infuses the impassioned author to to open up their imagination to open up to get their creative juices flowing into something that they are interested in and i think history makes a wonderful vessel for that because history is is something that's directly related to us human beings because we are part of history. Very helpful to hear you say that. I wonder if you would be uh, willing to give me an example of some historical fiction you've read that you enjoyed, so that I have a more concrete sense of what I'm talking about here. Um, Just off the top of your head. Off the top of my head, I, th I think of Dorothy Dunnett. Say more. Dorothy who? Dunnett. How do you spell it? D-U-N-N-E-T-T. -T. Uh, tell me more about Dorothy Dunnett. Done it. She's, I think she's a Scot. Go on, this is great. I'm glad I asked. And she wrote two, well, she, she wrote other books of historical fiction as well, but she wrote two series, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Bully for her, what are they? <laughs> one was called the Lyman series, that was the first one, and then there was the Niccolo Tell me about one of series. them. Tell me more about one of them and, and what gave you pleasure. Well, both of them are wonderful because they're, they're very swashbuckling without necessarily being pirate-related, romantic in the, in the grand sense of epic history and epic stories, full of characters that evolve and evolve in such a way that they start off in one form and you, you have no idea. I mean, you, ha you have an idea about them at the time and, and they change and they change in in all sorts of inconceivable ways and over a series of let's say six or seven volumes so much happens and you become thoroughly invested in it as if it was your own life history and you had a really good writer telling it mm, i'm so glad i asked this was so helpful um, it tells me a lot about historical fiction, about you, and about what I'm trying to do. Um, so I'm curious. You said that was so helpful, and 
how is it helpful for you? What does it tell you? What did what I have to say mean to you? Thank you. I'm going to sum it up briefly. I seem to be getting better at doing that. And then if we have a break, uh, we might have a you know, third movement after the break on that or whatever topic we think is most important. Perfect. Um, when I said I found it helpful, I feel I'm going to take that home and basically what I call meditate about it, muse on it. You said many, many things. And I'm glad this is going to be something I can listen to again because you said many, many things, many of which I found helpful. But right away, off the top, or the very top, was your use of the word imagination. And I think it's the correct term. I think what we're talking about is the historical imagination. I talk about it a lot in my book, and I'm very interested in it. When does the historical imagination cease to be historical and just becomes imagination? In the years when I was a devotee of Alfred, which have been really basically my adult life, there were times when I sat there and I allowed myself to fantasize. Oh, I was meeting Alfred, you know, and, and I had made up stories about him. But I can't put them in, you know, an academic piece. But if you don't do that, you're never going to understand what he was like. Likewise with any historical personage, but there's a good deal to history that doesn't have to do with dead white men and how great they were. It has to do with what the lives of the peasants were like, whom you might never ever get to know that way, you know. There are many other things in history than, than the thrill of whatever we were just talking about. And it's in the case of Alfred... The, the historical imagination has gone kablooey on him and the need was to draw it, to pull on the leash and draw it back to, you know, something more manageable because he was becoming, you know, the father figure of what was basically a fascist enterprise. Not too different to when, you know, what happened with the Nazis when they glorified, uh, you know, everything. And I mean, I can get into that some other time. Yeah, we're going to have to get into that since yeah. you opened that up. Yeah. But anyway, one thing was the historical imagination... And the second was the concept of genre, because as you describe what you're talking about, I remember what it was like for me to read The Lord of the Rings, which I read, and I have to say this, not, I mean, I do admire Tolkien as a philologist, and I like C.S. Lewis that way, but I would never on my own have read The Lord of the Rings, except for what I was going through in a difficult time with my two sons when I was a single father, and every night, no matter what happened, I read them some more pages from Lord of the Rings. It took me two years. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, there are many works of fiction that are not historical fiction that overlap with the things you were talking about, that overlap with it to mm. a large extent, and a good deal of the overlap has to do with the plots and the way the things are plotted. And the question of the plots that a uh, writer of a historical fiction would do is a really interesting question, because, for example... A detective story could be set in science fiction. It calls itself science fiction. And on this planet out there, somebody who'd done it, and it turns out to be the butler in the thing, it's the familiar plot, but it's set on some other planet and so on, you know, with people have three heads. And likewise, the same thing could happen where someone has a monk in the 12th century who was a detective, and except for the fact that, you know, he's wearing certain clothes and so on, you'd known, there was nothing medieval about it. And that's mediocre, you know, mediocre historical fiction. But it would be better if somebody can do a detective story or whatever genre they choose, it could be romance, set it in, you know, a certain century. The plot we all know, it's either, you know, they do, live, they, they do get married and live happily ever after, or, or the, the one who's the least, this scoundrel, turns out to be the, the long-lost son, and whatever it is. The genre is satisfying to the reader. At the same time, you're set in, in a uh, scene where the scenery, where the context is provokes the imagination, but it isn't, you know... The Bronx. <laughs> but it's also something that you can relate to. 
Well, yes, you can relate to it through your imagination. You don't have to relate to it any other way. Mm-hmm. You can relate to it to, uh, to hark to where we began. You can relate it to other things that you care about or know about or other dots that you have in your in your consciousness. You can say, oh, yes, this is like that and this is like that. So you don't feel entirely, yes, well, yes, right, right. What's it like for you to read history? Do you enjoy reading history if it's well written? When it's no, it makes no pretense to be historical fiction, but tells you what Abraham Lincoln was really like, or whatever. Oh, it is. absolutely! I, I love history as well. Okay, I, now I've we're read, getting somewhere. I've read, I've read plenty of historical. Okay, books. how about fiction that is just you know a novel? But but I, I with a caveat. Oh yes, because every historian has their version of history. That makes you happy because you like it when different people have different versions. I love it because you it, don't like it when everybody has the same version. Well. I'm okay. I'm actually okay. Oh, you're just being polite. You no, don't no, no. like it. No, you feel actu- you have to raise their consciousness and say no, you no, are no. free. No, no. There's a part of me. There's a part of me that's 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 very satisfied by having all the stories, you know, corroborating each other. We can talk about that too. But that wouldn't satisfy the more creative or thoughtful. Well, I I don't know if that's accurate either. I can be satisfied by many things. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. I was trying to pin you down, and that's not, you know, you did very well on that one. You won't let me pin you down where you can't be pinned down. <laughs> this was a wonderful, wonderful second movement, and I look forward to continuing with the third movement. All right, and we'll be back after this little musical interlude. We've been talking with Tomas Kalmar, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. We're dancing around King Alfred. I was going to say legendary. He is legendary. And he's historical. To say this has been wonderful beyond my wildest expectations. Talk about how. Go ahead. Tell well, me. Well, uh, I had you know 
pegged this last movement as being about the very interesting question of imagination, historical imagination, and how to discipline one's imagination. But I do want to blurt out, I knew it was going to be fun to have this session with you because it's our fourth, I think, our fourth session. And it has been, for me, a wonderful experience. I feel giddy with happiness because <laughs> because it's it's like... When I'm with you, it's, I always say it's like somehow you managed to give me this massage. I'll call it a massage because a good massage, they poke you somewhere in your back and say, "Ah, yeah, that's what, that's where, that's it, that's it," and then you massage that adroitly, and then this slight tension or deep tension, sometimes deep, uh, dissolves. And in my case, it has to do with the fact that by chatting with you like this, I've now. Uh, Oh, I've got three or four things I want to say at the same time. One is that I now feel much more relaxed about talking about my book. I always say if I had had an ordinary academic career, I would have had colleagues whom I could chat with about, you know. The truth is, in academia today, colleagues don't have time to chat with one another. They're all adjunct, they're running ragged, they're trying to get tenure, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there in hard work with plenty of time to muse, but no, no friends to do shop talk with and then for me for me this has been shop talk because the topic of uh, the line between history and its anti-history between history and well in my book I can get a I can simply call it between history and hagiography, but we can say the line between history and mere storytelling is of great interest and in, in, there is a field of the philosophy of history. It's a very interesting academic field and has been through many twists and turns like all fields. And, and this is actually not unlike its parallel in science. Say more. Well, science has, has the exact same issue. Oh, go away. How can it have exactly the same issue? How can history and science have the same issue? What is that issue? What's well, not exactly what the same. Is truth? Because, what is truth? Because is that the question? Yeah, it's related to that. Okay, let's say, let's say what is scientific truth and what is historical truth, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a good one. Mm -hmm. And then what is the truth of a parable, mm -hmm. which is not historical, it's not scientific. We can call it spiritual. I don't have any objections. But it, it, has, it has human... Great human value. Oh, but not only human value. If it's a parable, it only it has human value in the sense that human includes, not just secular. You know. Well, it has value for humans. Human beings. Yes, yes. I'm just trying to flag. Have. I'm just trying to flag that that period in the history of European culture where the distinction became urgent. For a long time, it didn't much matter. A historian, you know, you were saying just before the break, the historians that you enjoy reading, they write well, but one thing that you enjoy is the two historians on the same subject will turn out to tell different stories. Well, usually they do, because why would, why would an historian tell, you know, repeat the same story that someone told exactly, before? Exactly. There would be no interest, it no would, inspiration. Would it, it would be, be boring. boring. Right. Yeah. Right, and no in, the case, in the case of science, as Thomas Kuhn showed so brilliantly, most science is puzzle-solving. That's to say, most scientific labor in academics, the studies of, um, you know, in the discipline, within the discipline, not, not in popular, men, you know, but within the discipline, you're primarily solving puzzles. And if you solve a puzzle, you publish a paper, and if you solve enough of them, you get tenure. Some of them are paradigm shifts. And that's not at all the same thing as solving a puzzle. And the same thing happens in history. That's to say, in the professional academic field called history. 
you, you, you show that something didn't happen in this year, it happened in that year, or you show that, you know, what people said about Flanders is true or not true about, you know, France, and, and you publish. Right. And that's puzzle solving. Mm-hmm. Now, to get back to the thing about the philosophy of history, I'll just sum it up, zooming way out, which is that this distinction between telling history that actually happened and telling fun stories, but they didn't actually happen, is one of the most interesting, you know, questions there is. And uh, this is how I'm handling it. Because it's, it's a big surprise to me that my book, uh, that I can talk about my book as about being about these topics. Because in fact, the book is very technical about three documents. One in Latin and two in Old English. Because each of those documents has a story. And I focus not attention not on what the manuscript was, who wrote it, not on the usual things that one does in the field, but on what is the story doing here? What is its function? Why did they tell it? And how come these three stories are all variations on a theme? Now, um, the line between history and hagiography for short, because that's, this is for a study, a series called Hagiography Beyond Tradition, so you know, readers primarily will be people who are comfortable with the term and will be enjoying to see it used beyond just being about saints cults, but being a, you know, an aspect of all the things we've talked about. The way I phrase it in my book, because of Peter Hunter Blair, who would rather be wrong with everyone else than right with Kalmar, is I refer to professional historians as being professionally committed to policing the border between history and hagiography. (laughs) (laughs) And people like that. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's been trained, as I was, as a professional historian, gets it right away, because that is what you learn in graduate school, how to defend that border. And what what I end up showing in the book, really, I don't quite say this explicitly, I don't know if I will, is there's no line, it's a fractal. I, I somehow sensed you were going to bring Did the you? fractal. Oh, I'm tickled pink again. I'm tickled pink again. I love the fractal metaphor. For, I bet for that, you do. For me, it's not a metaphor. That, I'm a mathematician as well. <laughs> that porous, that porous um, well, me, boundary that that dissolves boundaries. <laughs> that paradoxical boundary. I'm really, thing. really intrigued to hear you describe it that way. Um, and I'll say, for me, what makes it fractal is that by zooming into more details, the hope was that by looking at the details, you would be able to, one at a time, say which details were true and which were not true. For example, when Alfred was small, his father, Ethelwolf, sent him to Rome to meet the Pope, and the Pope anointed him king. That's going to be the first of the three stories that I tell Everybody who knows about Alfred knows that that happened. Is it folktale? Why would he? Why would you know, why would you send a kid to Rome? Well, what they were able to show in the nineteenth century was yes, he did go to Rome. That was a fact. But no, he did meet the Pope. But no, the Pope did not anoint him king. <laughs> this was very important because after the Reformation, you didn't want the father of the British Empire to owe his royalty to the Pope. So you see right in that story, which is in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is the most reliable document on which all history of Anglo-Saxon England is based, 
Right in there, there's this fractal, I call it, the line, the border between what happened and this idea that the Pope somehow foresaw his future glory and anointed him king, saying, one day you will be the best king that England has ever seen. Not that that was explicitly said at the time, but it was soon said, right? You see where I'm going with this. So what makes it fractal is that no matter how minute the detail you get down to, that line is still there. It's not quite the same, Tonio, as porous. But I'm not going to split hairs over that because we would find a fractal hair that we would have to split. <laughs> I have a feeling that under the right circumstances you there, would be able to split the hair. That I would split the hair and you would split it further. <laughs> and making it essentially eternally unsplittable. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what threads do we want to maybe tie together? One for me has to do with the, the word I introduced, discipline. Yes. I think that's, that's a critical thing. Disciplining one's imagination, in some sense, they, they almost seem like contradictory terms, but bringing them together is creating a whole new kind of alchemy. And isn't it straightforward to say, if you're going to create a work of art, you have to have imagination, and you have to have a way of disciplining it. And I think that's why I love historical fiction, oh. because what it does is it takes... Oh. The imagination and it anchors it into history or quote unquote yeah. reality or truth. Yeah. And in a sense or in essence, it disciplines it. That's beautiful. And that's that's another takeaway, as they could say for me. Good historical fiction shows you one way of disciplining your historical imagination. And good, well written history shows you what seems like another way. It may be another way. It may be another way. A way without imagination. No, you have, as I say, if you don't have the imagination, you're not going to write good history. Ah. But the way you discipline it when you're a professionally trained historian has a slight difference from the best historical fiction. And in this respect, one really goes back to Sir Walter Scott at the beginning of the 19th century. It is said, and I think quite rightly, that it was because of Sir Walter Scott and his historical novels they, they were the rage in Europe. Everybody loved them because history came alive. He persuaded you that it, it could have been yesterday across the border. You know, it could be now. He made it come to life. He had a great historical imagination. And at that time, the distinction between history and fiction didn't matter quite as much. And as the century proceeded, the Germans especially and others wanted to draw that line and say, yes, that's all very well, but, you know, William Tell didn't really, you know, da 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 da, da. And so a new kind of discipline came in, which isn't always called positivist, but that's a pejorative term. Sometimes it used to be called scientific history, where you have a methodology that tells you the difference between I know this happened and there's no way of knowing that this happened. Now, I chose that carefully. There's no way of knowing that this happened. It's not quite the same thing as saying, I know this didn't happen. Mm. And that was the problem, you know? So I think that helps me. And, and the discipline of the imagination, I think this helps me see that what I do in my book is I show three ways of disciplining your imagination. No, I don't, no. I show various ways of disciplining your imagination when you are dealing with a story. When you're dealing with a story, there are different ways in which you can imagine, use it to feed your imagination. And historical 
imagination. Well, I think I, I'm running to the sands here. I'll have to finish the book and I'll never be able to finish the sentence. <laughs> <laughs> would you like to explore more of the story of Alfred? Yes, I think it would be good to... I think it would be good if you, you can you, poke, poke me somewhere else and I'll come up with another... You mentioned one story. The story where King Ethelwolf sends his youngest son to Rome to see the Pope, and the Pope anointed him king. And you say there are two other stories. Yes, yes. We have three stories. The one about going to Rome, I just sketched out. Mm -hmm. It's not yet a story. It's the beginning of a story, or it's a motif, a folktale motif. But it's historically accurate. How do we know? How do you know it's historically accurate? Well, according to your thesis... No. Well, you it's, said it's, that, what, what, that, what, what, it, that happened. What didn't happen was that the Pope didn't anoint him Yes, king. yes, yes. But this is the moment to be very precise. Okay. What I believe I said, we can listen to the tape, and if not, I should have said, <laughs> I should have said, is that leading and very reliable and historians with great integrity studied the documentation ah, yes. and were able to find some evidence, as one calls it, outside this story, outside this document, another piece of evidence that Alfred was in Rome in 853 and did meet with the Pope. And there we have 9th century. Oh, yes. And um, (laughs) If anybody out there And they also were able to show, to their satisfaction, that... How could how did they show that the Pope didn't anoint him king? It all hangs on two words in, in, in Old English. Halgode tokuning, hallowed him to king. How do they know, and in Latin it was unxit in regem, because it also is told in Latin. How do they know that the Pope didn't do that? Well, there is some document that shows he was invested with the insignia of a consular, da 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 some, some ritual he went through that was not kingship. <laughs> But being a little boy, he later misremembered it. He thought, when he grew up and became king, that he had been anointed king by the Pope. But it was not true. He misremembered what actually happened. And don't we always do that? Well, that's what I would say. I don't need to go further on that. We have only much time left. That's one story. In the original place where it was told, it was very clearly told to prefigure something in the future. And this device of saying something in childhood, something in, in the past, prefigures what is fulfilled later, was very important to their way of thinking in the Middle Ages. It's back in fashion now, but during you know the scientific period, that was like action at a distance, because what is going on is the future is acting on the past because of God's foreknowledge. And so Jesus fulfills what Jonas was suffering in the whale, because he too was in the underground for three days. And this is was beautiful to the medieval mind, but disgusting to the rationalist of the 18th century and ever since. Anyway, that's one story in which, although his brothers are still alive in 853, his father is alive, the irony is that he can't be king yet. His father is king. His brothers are king. His father dies. His brothers take the throne. 
Ethelstan, Ethelbald, Ethelburton, Ethelred all take the throne and die after two years because they're fighting the Vikings. This is why the 9th century differs from the 8th century. The 8th century was peaceful. The 9th century, if they're fighting the Vikings, they're the last kingdom left. The Vikings have won everywhere and each of them fails to beat the Vikings. And then little Alfred takes the throne and brings peace to the kingdom, blah, 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 blah. Alfred is the one who, who had that poetic sensitivity. What does the poetic sensitivity with. have to do with it? Because that's not traditional for kings to... Uh, Got it. Okay. So the second story is the one about his mother showing him the book. And that, too, is a story about the youngest son who alone succeeds in the quest. Now, that story comes into a Latin life written by a Welsh monk. And the Victorians couldn't bear the idea that this Welsh monk had the chutzpah to say that he was a friend of Alfred's and taught him Latin. So we have two stories about the youngest son alone succeeds in the quest. One of them is told as a story. The other is basically the narrative of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And the third example, which we do not get into today, is a parable told in the Old English translation of the Latin book by Boethius because Alfred translated these books from Latin into Old English after peace was brought to the kingdom. He was an intellectual, which, of course, is why I fell in love with him. And he ran away from the field of battle, which made me love him more, and returned to win the fight, as I do now today, after 50 years. <laughs> and so we have a parable about a, a race for a crown. The parable says, life is like a race for a crown. A crown is at the end of, a golden crown is at the end of a race course. A lot of people get together and they all run together. Whoever gets to the crown first can keep it for himself. Everybody wants to be the one to get there first and get it. But it rightfully belongs to just one. And that is a parable about being the first to win the contest and thereby getting the prize. So at the end, I say, people have thought these were some of these were Alfred's own memories. He misremembered the Pope. What if they were all stories that he is the source of them? He believed his own legend. If you try to get rid of all of the legends from the life of Alfred, you're going to be throwing out the baby with the bathwater because he thought he was pretty great and told these stories about himself. And that is where the book ends. <laughs> <laughs> so we have the ending well no there is a little bit at the end it says well in the case of Jesus people can say well okay these parables all have something in common but what if Jesus was the author of none of them and so I say well what if the similarity of these three stories that I've told is just an imaginary thing that I've you know, made up and Alfred was not the source of any of them I said I, I'm going to say that intriguing question is left for the skeptic infidel to ponder <laughs> You say the last chapter reveals your surprising conclusion. Yep. yep, and I do that because I follow the method of biblical critics, who the sensible ones, they're called redaction critics. They take these stories about Jesus and they say, we're not going to ask, was it true? We're going to ask, we're not going to ask, you know, how, why did Matthew tell it this way, but Mark, I, we're going to look at how this guy told this story and what his values were, because he framed it in this way and used it for these purposes. And then at least we'll know what the function of that story was at the time that it was written down. So I start with that, bracketing off the question of who wrote it, when, why, what, just what is the story and what does it actually say. Then I look at its function in the document in which it is. And then at the end I say, 
Well, who made up these stories if they're not, you know, reality? Who, whose imagination are we glimpsing here? And it looks as if you couldn't possibly prove that it was Alfred's, but I do. There is a very well-documented case of the life of St. Anselm. Anselm is very well-known. He's a great philosopher, famous for his ontological proof that God exists, because logic was a very new thing in his day. And he said, you know, God is the most perfect being you could possibly imagine, and if he actually exists, he's more perfect than if he doesn't actually exist. Therefore, he exists. <laughs> and many people have puzzled about this and had a great time over it. Well, his life was written by a beloved and loving disciple, Iadmer. And when Anselm was little, he dreamt, he lived in the mountains, he dreamt that he climbed a mountain and met God. And God fed him the whitest bread and they had a very nice conversation. Then he woke up the next morning, Tonio, and... I don't know if this is me or if it actually says it there, and wondered, did I meet God or did I only imagine that I met God? And I claim that you can tell this is Anselm's actual dream because this is the logic of the ontological proof, which is, you know, it's more, the dream is better if it's true, but it's already a good dream. So there is an inner connection there. And that case, you know, throws light on the possibility that and we know that Anselm and Admiral were good friends and so on, that throws light on the possibility that the guy who tells this story about Alfred and who claims he taught him to read Latin and so on heard the story from Alfred when he was teaching him Latin because there was the guy already able to read Old English and now he's learning to read Latin. Mm-hmm. I Do think you, you should say something now. <laughs> for our next sit-down together, our next chat... Where do you think we should go? I would like to talk to you about what I've learned about radio by doing these shows with you, especially because we did that show about the f- about Facebook okay. and you helped me understand something which I never understood Wonderful. before. I think that would be a world of good. I will say I was very familiar with radio in my youth. I was on a very popular radio show every Sunday night. My name was a household word in Australia. Radio we'll, has changed we'll get since there then. <laughs> next time. Thanks. <laughs> thank you all for listening Tomas thank you again for coming in this is about the end of this magical mystery tour oh, magical mystery tour and uh, until next time have a wonderful week <laughs> oh man <laughs>